Say hallelujah, church. Say hallelujah. Say it again a little louder. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He is holy and he is worthy of our praise this morning, isn't he? Let's keep singing. Worthy is the
worth asking the question. Is he your everything, church? Do you adore him with all that you are? This mystery of the air that we breathe and, and the, the living word, our daily bread, that every fiber of our being beats for him, that all we are is found in him. This is our prayer. Ask you to sing it. Let's continue. If you need to take a different posture as we sing, if you would want to come and, and kneel at the altars, if you want to kneel at your seat, if, if you want to sit, follow the posture of your heart, but may we continue, church, to cry out to him in, in desperate need of him to come and fill every part of our lives. Let's pray this together. This is the air I Yeah. 
this is true whether we have fully come to the realization or not we are desperate for you and lost without you and perhaps we've tried to come and fill these voids of what we need with with so many other things lord and i i know and trust that you are moving in this place and fleshing that out, getting the flesh out of us, that we would live lives holy and devoted to you, God, that it would be your face that others see, that it would be your glory that is shown. Lord, we, we know that you're moving, and I just um, ask that you would um, help us be aware of your presence, Lord, as we move throughout this service, Lord, as Pastor Josh comes and brings the word that you've laid on, on his heart, God, may it be your words flowing through him, and may our ears be open to you, the voice of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that an encounter with you is, is impossible to leave unchanged, but that we must come with open hands and open hearts to however you would speak. Help us, Lord us hear you. Help us respond. Where we might want to hobble, would you help us? Lord, I, I do ask uh, that you would just uh, bring peace to those in our congregation that may be hurting. Lord, we know that um, you have never promised that following you would be easy. You never promised that this world and that this life would be without trouble. Lord, but you promised to be with us and that we can have hope that you have overcome the world. And I ask that you would help us to cling to the promises that we find in your word. Lord, help us to have the deep, unshakable peace that comes from knowing you. Lord, that whatever we face, Lord, whatever uh, sea we're thrown into and that we're blown and tossed, God, that, that you would be our steady, you would be our anchor. desperately love you and our prayers that our lives then would look like that it's in your son's precious and holy name that we pray and thank you Amen. well good morning it's great to see you this morning <clears throat> um just a, I, I guess maybe a housekeeping thing uh before i jump in to this morning's message um You've heard Pastor Brian talk over the past couple of weeks about our next phase of, uh, of our all-in campaign. If you've been around for a while, you remember uh, we started, I don't know, three and a half years ago. I can't remember, to be honest. Time is a crazy thing. Um, but over three years ago, we started uh, a campaign of all-in to kind of do some building uh, improvements and projects around in the sanctuary is one and the carpet below you and in the, in the, uh, the well and things like that. Um, have been part of this. And so Pastor Brian announced a few weeks ago uh, that we are starting the next phase of that, and that uh, involves our kids and teens wing, which used to be the sanctuary of the church. How many, just out of curiosity, how many of you were around when that was our sanctuary? That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And so what was once your sanctuary is now still a sanctuary, but it's the sanctuary for our kids and our teens. Um, I didn't know I was going to cry. That's silly. <laughs> Where our kids and our teens get to encounter Jesus. 
And so for those of you who have memories of encountering Jesus in that sanctuary, the next generation gets to have encounters with Jesus in that sanctuary. And we want to be stewards of that. And so we're just, uh, we're, we're updating it. Uh, some of your coffee stain or some of your just whatever stains that are on the carpet from when you were in that sanctuary are still there times 10 now because there have been kids and teens in there. And so it's just time to do some updating of that space. And, uh, and so uh, I know sometimes it can be like it's out of sight, out of mind for us who aren't in there all the time. Um, but we never want our kids and our teens to be out of sight, out of mind. Amen. And so this is an opportunity for us to invest. There's been a lot of work already. Volunteers have put lots of hours in there. I saw Bob Rake. I saw the, uh, the teaser picture of a pretty awesome project that's going in there that he's been working on. Ryan and Brent have been uh, busting their tails, getting things done. We've got electrical work coming in this week. And so there's lots of things. But obviously with all of those things, we need money. And, uh, you know, it's not... As a youth pastor, it's not really typically my, my job to, to ask for money, but Pastor Brian's out, and, so, and this involves me, and so I'm going to ask for money, all right? So I don't care. <clears throat> what are you going to do, right? I've got eight and a half years under my belt here. I can ask you for money. Um, boy, I'm going off the cuff, and it's showing, right? In front of you, uh, in front of you there are these all-in cards, and so would just ask that you would prayerfully consider um, supporting our teens and our kids. Um, you can take these, you can pledge whatever you want to pledge. If you want to just write the check for $50,000 and we'll be done, that's cool. Um, um, you can drop these in the, uh, in the boxes in the back, turn them into one of us staff, turn them into Harold, Ryan, whatever, just get them to us. Uh, they're pledges, that way we kind of know where we're at. All right, cool, is that good? Thanks for listening. I'm done with that. You guys are awesome. Well, um, we are coming off of the single most important holiday of the year, right? Valentine's Day? Any, anyone like love Valentine's Day? Here's, here's what I've discovered. Uh, Valentine's Day is a very polarizing holiday, right? You have people who hate Valentine's Day, and they also hate those who love Valentine's Day. <laughs> Right? On the other hand, you have those who love Valentine's Day, and they hate those who hate Valentine's Day. Right? It's this polarizing holiday revolving around love. People have lots of opinions about Valentine's Day, like we all have opinions about pizzas. I'm proud to say that I've contributed some of these pizza boxes here. Right? I'm not ashamed to say that. We have got quite the tower. I see we're getting creative here in how we're stacking you can't see these small i better not touch that huh i should just i should just leave that we all have our opinions we all have our opinions about valentine's day we all have our opinions about which pizza is best and if you're on the same side as me and you agree with my pizza uh assessment then we're cool but if you disagree with my pizza assessment then those are fighting words right we all have opinions Perhaps at times our opinions become idols, right? But we're not talking about opinions today. That's another topic for another day. But we are continuing our Gods at War series, um, <clears throat> where we're looking at this idea of idolatry, and idols that, that we have made in our lives. And what we've kind of been saying throughout this series is that every day, 
these things battle for our attention. They battle for our time and our resources and our families. And some of these idols are easily recognized and others are more subtle. But as we allow them into our lives, they feed off of our true desires, our hungers, and our wants. And we think that they bring fulfillment and purpose, but before too long, they take control. They grip us tightly and they convince us that they belong. And we find ourselves at war with these idols, these false gods. And oftentimes we surrender ourselves to these idols. And so for the past few weeks, we've been looking at what some of these different idols are. And today, coming off of Valentine's Day, we are fittingly going to continue with this series, and we're going to talk about the idol of love. Now, love is quite prevalent in our culture today, right? Like, that's kind of an obvious statement to say. Again, we just came off of Valentine's Day. It's a day where our infatuation of love is on full display. If you walked into Kroger or Walmart or any other store in the past week and a half, you will see this infatuation of love on full display. The roses, the same roses that two weeks ago you could have bought for one price, you could have gone last week and paid triple for the same roses that are probably more dead than they were three weeks ago, right? The candy, the candy that you can pay extra for to get it in the shape of a heart. How cool is that? Can I, just, can I just gripe for a second? Is that okay? Chelsea got me a Russell Stover's heart. This isn't the one. This is a clearance day after Valentine's Day. Now that's how you get candy right there. But Chelsea got me a Russell Stover's heart. And you know, you have this heart and you're like, I'm going to open this up and there's going to be, it's just going to be lined with all the different chocolates, right? And I've got chocolate for days. Don't know what it is, but it's going to be chocolate of some sort. I open it up and there's like, seven pieces of candy just scattered through there it's more space than candy what is happening but it still costs the same probably even more the chocolate the candy the dining reservations you've got to get them six weeks in advance to get anywhere good otherwise you're stuck at white castle which they do have valentine's reservations at white castle by the way it's true look up look it up but it's not just February 14th that touts the idea of love in our culture, right? It's literally all over the place. Think of the Hallmark movies that you can watch whenever you want. The rom-coms. The Bachelor. The Bachelorette. And even shows like, I don't know, just throwing this out because these are the ones that I watch. Chicago Fire, Chicago Med, Chicago PD, all of the Chicagos that at face value are TV shows about, you know, our public servants who are, who are serving day in and day out. And it's just fascinating to see kind of some of the behind the scenes work of that. The truth is, though, is what are those about? There's actually love stories, right? They're excuses to paint a picture of a love story. And then there's the more extreme portrayals of love. <laughs> TV shows like Love Island. And if you've never watched Love Island, consider yourself lucky. <laughs> and there's a show called Love is Blind. You, you just, you don't see the person. You, 
and they get married, I guess. And then eventually they see each other after they've been married and they talk to each other behind a wall. It's the weirdest thing. And if that weren't enough, there's Love is Blind Brazil edition. And then, and then there's Love is Blind Japan edition. We even saw and may or may not have watched an episode or two of a show called Dating on the Spectrum that follows individuals around on the spectrum who are looking for love. And the list goes on and on and on, and we haven't even touched the surface of love songs. And we can't go on forever because I've got to get to other important things besides just talking about our infatuation with love. And please don't mishear me. I'm not bashing any of it. I love love, right? Love is awesome. I love my wife. It's great, right? I, uh, it, it, there's nothing wrong with it. The romanticizing of love in and of itself is not bad. I think, though, that as we've talked about with all of these idols, it's not that they are necessarily in and of themselves bad. It's when this kind of love becomes the sole pursuit of our lives. In other words, it's when it becomes idolatry that it becomes a problem. Now, some of you, some of you like the dysfunctional aspects of a love show, right? That's why you watch these, because like you just love to see the dysfunction that is on full display in these, in these love shows. Some of you have all of those shows queued up in your Netflix, and you just love to see the craziness that unfolds. There's no shame there, right? It's entertaining. But can I introduce you this morning to another source, another option for you? to find these dysfunctional love stories? It's the Bible. (laughs) The Bible. The Bible is full of dysfunctional stories, specifically dysfunctional love stories. And this morning, I want to invite you into one of those stories in particular. We're going to be, this morning, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 9. If you want to go ahead and flip there, by all means, go ahead. Um, we're not going to we're not going to read the entire story um, that that is involved here because it would take up too much time. But in just a minute, we'll we'll pick up in the story in Genesis 29. This is a story that has lots of dysfunction. This story has lots of dysfunction. I also want to say from the very beginning that there are lots of directions that this story could go, and the things that I'm kind of pulling out of this story for this particular sermon are, no, are in no way intended to minimize some of the other stuff that may be found in here. In fact, there are some things in this story that will leave you scratching your head and wonder what in the world is happening here. And I don't want to minimize that this morning, but it's simply not where we're going to land today. So in Genesis 29, we find the makings of a true love story. The kind that you would expect to find on reality TV. It's a love story, though, that takes an unexpected turn, like many love stories do. The story begins when a man named Jacob falls in love with a young, beautiful woman named Rachel. Now, we don't have time, again, to read the entire story of Jacob and Rachel and how this all plays out, but let me kind of catch you up with where we're at. Jacob was the second-born son of Isaac. He was the younger brother to Esau. 
Now, if you remember, Jacob receives, or rather Jacob steals Isaac's blessings. And after he does this, he kind of, he goes about on his own way. He separates from the family and he goes on his own way and he goes to, uh, he, he goes to find work. He goes to try to find a place to settle down and a place to work. He goes in hopes of finding family. And as he goes on his way, he happens upon some flocks of sheep. Now come to find out this particular flock of sheep that he had stumbled upon was the flock of Laban. Laban, who happened to be Jacob's maternal uncle. Now again, just a fair warning, there are parts of this story that are just kind of weird. And there's parts of love stories throughout the Bible that quite frankly are just weird. And it's just what it is, right? We have to understand that we can't just plant these stories in our culture and just go about our business. But we can't get sidetracked with that this morning. So Jacob, he comes upon this flock of sheep and he finds out it's Laban's flock. And, uh, and, and Laban happens to be kind of who he was looking for. When he set out on his own, uh, he had had finding Laban in his mind. And the shepherds that were there, uh, that they were, the shepherds that were watching the flock when Laban gets there, uh, uh, Jacob kind of, sorry, when Jacob gets there, Jacob kind of says, hey, I'm looking for Laban. Can you get him? And the shepherds go off and they find Laban to bring him back to Jacob. And while Jacob was waiting for Laban, Laban's second-born daughter, Rachel, starts to come towards where Jacob was while he was waiting with the flock. Now, again, I mentioned that this is one of those love stories that just kind of, like, this screams reality to you. Like, this is just picture-perfect romance right here. Jacob is there among the sheep. Sheeps? Among the sheep. He's waiting for the shepherds to bring Laban back to him. And as he's waiting for Laban... From a distance, he sees this kind of silhouette of a young, beautiful woman. And this woman, Rachel, is walking towards him. And you, you can just picture kind of the movie uh, scene here where he is far off and this woman is far off, but she's moving closer. And as she comes closer, the, the, the kind of lens comes into focus and, and reveals this stunningly beautiful woman named Rachel. And as Jacob lays eyes on Rachel, it's love at first sight. Right? It's, kind of, it's just, it, this is it. This is the moment. Jacob loves her from first sight. And so ja and Rachel comes to where Jacob is, comes closer, comes to the flocks, and the Bible tells us that Jacob greets her with a kiss. That's kind of weird because they just met, right? But it's love at first sight. Who cares? Now, a little bit later, Laban gets there. Rachel's dad, Laban gets there. And Jacob, basically, you know, there's this interchange between Jacob and Laban. And basically, uh, Jacob starts to work for Laban and take care of the flocks as well. Now, Laban, after Jacob had been kind of working for just a little bit, uh, Laban tells him, hey, your family, you can't just work here for nothing. We've got to take care of you. Like, you're one of ours. We've got to take care of you. We've got to compensate. You can't simply work for free. And so Laban asked Jacob, what is it that you want? What do you want to earn? What, what, are, what should be your wages for working for the family? How can we pay you? How can we take care of you for your contributions? And this is where we're going to pick up the story here in Genesis 29. Starting in verse 16, it says this. Now Laban had two daughters. 
The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. There's some weird translation stuff that comes out as weak eyes in the NIV, and there's several other transitions, but this is the more important part. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. See what I mean? This is like real romance movie stuff here. Jacob was in love with Rachel. Just met him. Met her. That's kind of weird. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your daughter, Rachel. Laban says, well, it's better that I give her to you than uh, some other man. Stay here with me. Work for me for seven years and my daughter will be yours. So Jacob and Laban, they enter into this agreement to work for seven years for the promise of Rachel. Now, how's that for commitment? All of you lovers of love are like, aw, that's so sweet. Like, he's so sweet. He worked seven years to get Rachel. That's commitment. How wonderful is that? Now, now working for the wife in this context, in that culture, was not an uncommon thing, right? Uh, but, but maybe seven years seems to may have been a little bit excessive. But Jacob was good with it. He was fine with it. He had no problem with it. And if that wasn't sappy enough, let's keep reading. Listen to verse 20. This is going to make you gag. So Jacob, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. <laughs> That's a major gag, right? Like, these are the comments that for us as guys hate it when other guys say things like this, right? Because like, bro, you're making us look bad. Like, don't say that in the presence of my wife, right? Because you're going to make me look really bad. He works for seven years and scripture says because of his great love for Rachel, that seemed like only a few days. How beautiful is this story? And that kind of points to some of the craziness of love, right? Like we get caught up and we get in trouble because there can be this completely irrational side of love. We have a hard time thinking objectively about people or even things that we love. Our emotions sometimes get involved and we simply don't see things clearly. But let's continue on in the story. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, my time is complete, and I want to make love to her. Jacob approaches Laban as his seven years are completed. He's done his commitment, he's done his time, he's earned his wife that was agreed upon. It was time to consummate this marriage. And now comes the twist in this story. The twist that makes this love story netflix worthy as we approach this twist i want to kind of first draw your attention back to the history of jacob now if you don't know this about scripture scripture is full of ironic connections and i want to point one out to you here this morning remember the story of jacob jacob was the second born of isaac and Jacob had deceived his father into stealing his father's blessings from his firstborn brother Esau. He had taken advantage of 
the lack of sight in Isaac in his old age, and he had taken advantage of him and stolen the blessing of the firstborn Esau. Remember, as we go on in the story, remember the deception that Jacob was involved in. Because now it seems as though this deception is coming back to haunt him. Listen to verse 22 through 25. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. Now again, this is kind of where weird cultural things come into place. It would have been in a tent where there was not really a whole lot of light and it would consummate their marriage. You remember the connection there of kind of the lack of sight and deception takes place. Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant to Zilpah, to his daughter, as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? My, how the turntables, right? That was an office reference. Again, there are these cultural things that we don't necessarily understand, but essentially Laban deceives Jacob into consummating his marriage. But instead of consummating the marriage with Rachel, he consummated the marriage with Leah, the firstborn. Again, see the ties between this idea of the first and secondborn and deception. There's these flashbacks to what Jacob had done to Esau. And so Jacob approaches Laban and says, what have you done? This is not what we agreed upon. And Laban essentially tells him that that's not how we do things here. The firstborn always goes first around here. So what happens? Well, Laban requires another seven years for Jacob to earn Rachel. And Jacob is smitten in love, and so he does it. And after seven years, eventually, Jacob marries Rachel, the one that he loved, the one that he had been working for for 14 years. And in the dust of this crazy, dysfunctional love story, you have Leah. Listen in verse 30 to the way this relationship is described. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. He worked for Laban for another seven years. Leah loves her husband. And Leah wants more than anything else for him to reciprocate those feelings. She spends her life hoping and dreaming of the day that she will feel loved from her husband. She essentially makes it her life goal to win the heart of her husband, Jacob. She puts her hope in love. And this love is seemingly becoming an idol for Leah. Well, Scripture tells us that Leah has something going for her. See, Leah is able to have children, while Rachel, Scripture tells us, is barren. And in this context and in this culture, this was a significant deal. And so Leah is able to provide Jacob with children. And with every child that she gives birth to, Leah thinks, maybe now my husband will finally 
notice me. Maybe now he will finally actually love me. And I want you to listen to the record of the names of children that Leah gives birth to in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have brought him three sons. So his name, his name was Levi. See, the names of Leah's son reveal the God of her heart. With every son, she thinks, finally, Jacob will love me. Love, or at least the idea of love, had become the God that she worshipped. And again, don't hear what I'm not saying this morning. Happily ever after, love songs, sappy love stories are not a bad thing. In fact, relationships are a gift from God. The trouble arises when relationships replace God. And this goes for any relationship, not just romantic ones. Relationships with our children, relationships with our family, relationships with friends. When relationships replace God, they become idolatry. When we make the love of another person the God of our lives, we place incredible pressure on that relationship. We're basically saying, I want you to do for me what only God can do for me. And here we find Leah. And at the end of this chapter, chapter 29 we see this tiny detail that points to maybe a possible realization that Leah has. Listen to verse 35. Again, Leah had just had three sons, and she was giving birth to her fourth son. Verse 35 says, Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Finally, it seems that Leah stopped looking to her husband for those things that only God could give her. And she turned to God and she said, this time I will praise the Lord. See, Judah was finally a name that was not related to a loveless relationship with her husband. Rather, Judah was a name that expressed praise to the Lord. It seems as though in this moment that Leah realized that she would never obtain her fair share of Jacob's love. She realizes that what really matters was the worship of Yahweh. And, and this is one of those ideas that's presented in Scripture that is really not hard for us to make a connection to, to see how this plays out in our current day, right? 
Like all of those love things that I talked about at the beginning of, of the sermon, all of those sappy movies and Valentine's Day and chocolates and roses and all of those things, it's easy for us to, to make a connection here. But can we get a little bit closer to home for just a minute? Sometimes when, when we talk about idols and things like this, I think it's really easy for us to be critical of worldly culture, right? It's easy for me to stand up here and crack jokes about what you can find on Netflix and say, look at the world and how crazy it is and how it perceives love. It's easy for us to do that, right? But can we be honest enough here in this place to admit that this isn't just a Hollywood problem? That this hits really close to home for our Christian culture? If we're really honest, can we see that we have at times elevated romantic love to a form of idolatry? That at times we have propped up married life as the ultimate goal? That sometimes the language we use within our church culture places undue pressure on people to find that special someone? In fact, we've even gone so far at times to imply that married life is the pinnacle of life. It's the pinnacle even of our Christian life. It's on our Christian college campuses too, right? The term ring by spring. <laughs> it's a well-known phrase that floats around our Christian colleges. And I was there. The temptation for a ring by spring. In our Christian media, again, I'm, I'm not bashing any of this stuff, okay? Please don't mishear me. But if you've ever read a Karen Kingsbury book, you know it's there. And I have had more than one significant conversation with young women who are struggling in their pursuit of happiness in relationships. And it is very clear that one of the contributing factors is the portrayal of love in our Christian culture. Of finding that special someone that God has for them who will be absolutely perfect. And suddenly, the well-intentioned pursuit of God's will for our lives becomes the idol of love. Now, but we don't want to get too obvious in this idolatry, right? Like we're we're good Christians and we don't want to we don't want to get too we, this is obvious, we don't want to get too obvious in our idolatry. And so I think sometimes we come up with other ideas to counter that. And it seems to be good on the surface. And we kiss dating goodbye so that we can focus on the pursuit of God. And that's a great thing, right? Then we throw in, we tag on well-meaning quotes like a woman's heart should be so close to God that a man should have to chase him to find her. And I feel like maybe a woman's heart should be so close to God just because that's what God wants for her. Not so that some man knows where to find her. And I can't help but wonder if we actually use our pursuit of God as a means 
to an end. Specifically in this scenario, as a means to the end of romantic love. Like, I'm going to focus on my relationship with God for this season so that eventually I will find the right girl. Guilty. Can we go back to Leah for a second? From my reading of this story, there seems to be no evidence that this praising of the Lord changed Leah's standing with Jacob. It does not say in Scripture that because Leah finally repented of her idolatry and turned and praised God, that eventually God gave her the desire of her heart. And Jacob loved her more. Scripture doesn't tell us that. We don't see that. And so the temptation, I think, is to give in to praising God so that, in turn, we get the desires of our heart. But then, if we're honest, we're simply worshiping the idol of our desires. When it comes to the pursuit and the worship of God, I will praise the Lord has to be our end game not simply a means to another end. Can we go to the verse in Joshua that we've been pointing to in each week of this series? Joshua 24, 23 says, Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. I wonder, have we made love one of those foreign gods that prevents us from yielding our hearts to God. I understand that in this congregation, there is a broad demographic here, right? We have young teenagers, we have older teenagers, we have college-age students, we have young married, we have older people, we have, uh, we have single, we have married, we have divorced, we have widowed, and the experiences represented in this church are very broad. Perhaps it may seem difficult for you to apply this particular message to your life where you are today, right? Because I've already found love, or I've already got that special someone, and things are great, and so it can be hard to find our place in this idea. But can we take a look at the root of this pursuit of love? I think when we look at the root of this, we can all find some common ground. Think at the root of this idolatry of love that we see represented with Leah. We simply find the desire to be accepted. We find the desire for approval from other people. Surely now, after giving Jacob all of these sons, he will love me. He will notice me. He will approve of me. He will accept me. He will finally see me. Those are all desires that we've had, right? And I don't want to imply that those desires are bad because I don't think that they are. It's when they become our sole pursuit that they turn to idolatry. So wherever you find yourself this morning, may I encourage you to find a way to respond as Leah did after son number four. After Judah was born, may you find a way to respond, whatever your circumstances are, with 
this time I will praise the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much uh, for your love, for your portrayal of love, real, true love. God, we confess that we have at times put our desires for love, affection, attention, acceptance of other people. We put that at the forefront of our minds. God, we repent of that. Would you forgive us for that? May our response to that be, this time I will praise the Lord. God, we confess that as the church, we have sometimes contributed to this idea. Where we have at times made the pursuit of romantic love an idol. We repent of that. Forgive us. We teach this idea that regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the acceptance of another person, I will praise the Lord. God, as Joshua says, we remove the foreign idols that prevent us from pursuing Yahweh. We take this opportunity to do just that this morning. We want to focus on you. We only want to praise you. So God, throughout this week, would you show us those areas in our lives where those foreign gods, those idols, are taking a stronghold? Even as we enter into Ash Wednesday and Lent, what a great time for us to reflect on our lives, these ideas of idols, to repent of those, to turn towards you. God, we pray that you would go with us from this place. May we carry your grace and peace to our community and to our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.